Welcome to Making Waves, a podcast about fostering connection and embracing difference. I'm Mark, and in this episode, I'm talking with Julian Cribb about the biggest threats that humanity faces, how to find hope, and why telling the truth and connecting with other people is now more important than ever. Julian Cribb is an Australian author and science communicator. His career includes appointments such as scientific editor for the Australian newspaper, Director of National Awareness for the Australian Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, or CSIRO, and President of National Bodies for Agricultural Journalism and Science Communication. His published work includes over 9,000 articles, 3,000 science media releases, and 10 books. He has received 32 awards for journalism. His previous books include Earth Detox, Food or War, Poisoned Planet, and The Coming Famine. As a science writer and a grandparent, Julian is deeply concerned at the existential emergency facing humanity, and his latest book maps hopeful pathways out of our predicament. His latest book, How to Fix a Broken Planet, describes the 10 catastrophic risks that menace human civilization and our planet, and what we can all do to overcome or mitigate them. It explains what must be done globally to avert each mega threat, and what each of us can do in our own lives to help preserve a habitable world. This book offers the first truly integrated world plan of action for a more sustainable human society and a fresh hope. This book is a must-read for anyone seeking sound practical advice on what citizens, governments, companies or community groups can do to safeguard our future. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. So my first question would really be, what inspired you to write this book now and what unique contribution does it make to its field? I mean, if it even... Even has a field yet. Well, the answer to that begins about 25 years ago when I began meeting a lot of rather depressed scientists. Uh, these scientists were going out and gathering data from all around the world and they were coming home and looking at what it said and it was, it was very dispiriting stuff. Um, they could see that the world was going to hell in a handcart. And these are not just climatologists, they were scientists looking at nature scientists looking at agriculture, scientists looking at waters and soils and things like that. So a lot of different scientists were gathering the same sort of thing, that we, humanity, are in quite a lot of trouble. Um, and they, they relayed that to me. Now, I didn't know whether they were telling the truth or not, uh, whether this was right or wrong, but as a, a, a science journalist, I knew I could find out. Um, I knew that I could test what they were telling me against the best information from the best scientists at the best institutions on earth. And that is what I did. Uh, I started going to the top science, um, the most uh, authoritative papers and journals, uh, and reading what they had to say about these various things. And the conclusion I came to is that there is not one or two threats, like most people think, but there are in fact 10 mega threats, and they're all intimately woven together, which means that we cannot address them one by one. We have to tackle them all together because they are all the result of human overpopulation, human overconsumption and human overpollution. It is us that have done these things. We have made the world a much more dangerous place than it was uh, in the middle of the last century. Uh, Our capacity to inflict mass harm on ourselves has been growing exponentially. Uh, And it's now reaching a point where we have what I call an existential emergency. It is the greatest crisis that humans have ever faced in the two million years that we've been evolving on this planet. So just to make sure I'm getting this right, after a series of conversations with experts across a range of fields, 
you aim to gather as much information as possible and synthesize it into one cohesive, sharp, punchy piece of work. And that's what these books or this most recent book is the result of. Yes, as a science writer, what I did was I set out to translate the science into English, into plain English that ordinary people could easily understand. Um, so, you know, the, the, the earlier books, the first five books, um, are focused on the science. So if you want to know where the information comes from uh, and who's produced it, then you can find that out. The latest book, How to Fix a Broken Planet, is designed for anybody. It's basically a manual. It's an outline plan for human survival. It is what you can do in your own life to help make this a more habitable world, to help prevent or head off the disaster that many people now uh, foresee as, as bearing down on us. Oh, yeah. I think connecting these mega threats to our everyday life and how each person can have a, a meaningful impact on these is going to be really important for hope. Uh, I think people would have an idea of some of these mega threats. But just for clarity's sake, could you please tell us what each of these mega threats are? Yeah, well, first of all, extinction. We've wiped out two-thirds of the world's large animals and we're destroying them at a faster rate even than the dinosaurs got wiped out. Uh, secondly, resources. Um, we, we're losing freshwater, topsoil, fish, forests and other resources at appalling rates. Thirdly, global poisoning. We are poisoning every single person and everything on the planet every day especially our children. Fourth, we're constructing weapons that can obliterate us many times over. And you probably saw the doomsday clock advance now to uh, 90 seconds to midnight. Uh, we're shaping a climate that will render the earth largely uninhabitable by humans within a few generations if we keep on going the way we are. We're building dangerous technologies over which society has no control. Uh, we grow masses of food, throw half of it away, and we wreck the planet trying to grow even more. We are every year trying to cram another 80 million people into lifeboat Earth. And this is driving all the other threats, right? Population is not a threat in itself, but it drives all the other threats. Uh, we unleash a new pandemic or a new plague on ourselves every two to three years now, and we spread them worldwide as fast as we possibly can. And finally, we lie constantly and continually to ourselves about all of this. You know, we do not face the truth. So my argument is that these are not the actions of a wise species, or even maybe an intelligent one. Our governments and corporations seem paralysed. They're unable to grasp the magnitude of the overwhelming interlinked risks that we all face now. And consequently, they're doing nothing. Not a single government on Earth has got a plan for human survival. Not one of them. So I thought, well, maybe I should write one, <laughs> at least you know, to make a start, to give something that might inspire others uh, to develop their own plans. And I wanted to provide them with the evidence, the evidence for the 10 threats that I've described to you, so that they can check it out for themselves. They don't have to believe me. They don't have to take my word for any of this. Uh, and even the solutions, they're not my solutions, they are the solutions recommended by scientists and by some of the wisest minds on Earth today. This is going to be such a valuable tool for people. Uh, Julian, hearing all of those can be quite overwhelming. I mean, they're, they're pretty extensive. 
how did we get here? So how did we get to the point where all of these threats even emerged? And then how did we let it get to the point where they're all now nipping at our heels? Well, uh, 72 years ago when I was born, um, there was 2.5 billion humans on the planet. And we had a sustainable civilization, uh, not a very good one because we'd just finished World War II and, and, uh, and that, but we hadn't started the mass release of fossil fuels that we got today. We hadn't got the overpopulation. We hadn't got the overpopulation. Uh, pollution. Uh, we haven't got the chemicalization of the planet that we've got today. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it has been the explosion in human numbers and our exploitation of the planet that has driven us into this corner. So it, it's really, it, it's everything compounding. I mean, coal was a benign thing when it was first adopted by industry in the 1850s. But today, it's a planet killer. The same with agriculture. Agriculture was a wonderful development, you know, in the, in the agricultural revolution in the 18th century. But now it's consuming the world, it's clearing the Amazon basin, you know, it, it's re tearing down the forests and the grasslands and things like that. It's a monster that, that is destroying its own future, not just everybody's uh, future. So, you know, these things have just got out of control because of the sheer number of people that are demanding stuff. Uh, collectively, we humans consume 101 billion tonnes of materials every single year. That's 12 tonnes for each one of us. Wow. Okay, now we, we were consuming about 70 billion tonnes about, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. We'll be consuming 170 billion tonnes by 2050, right? It, it, we are mining the earth into, and, and you know what a, an old mine looks like? It, it's a, you know, it's a landscape of like the, the moon. I mean, it, it's, it's mm. a disaster. So that's what we're doing to the planet at the moment. And if we want to survive long-term, we've got to stop doing it. Julian, I'm by no means a whiz on economics, but even I'm pretty aware that the planet has a limited amount of land, water, rock, space, food, etc which means our consumption of all those things needs to also be limited. I mean, we can't infinitely consume from finite resources. I think that's basic supply and demand. Surely the people in positions of power who are educated in this know this. I mean, even from a business viewpoint, it doesn't even sound like good business. It has long-term projections of running out of resources. Well, they don't care is the short answer. I mean, at the moment, the chemicals that we are emitting are killing around about 13.7 million people every single year. That's like two holocausts, a new holocaust every six months, driven by human chemical emissions, toxic chemical emissions. And uh, nobody is trying to stop this. No government on earth is trying to stop this. They've got a few laws that, you know, limit pollution of this and that. But Nobody is taking an overall approach to stopping the poisoning of the planet. So that's an example where industry is very happy to make the money and kill 13.7 million people. It's the biggest act of homicide in human history, right? There's never mm. been a bigger act of homicide. Uh, it's twice as bad as World War II. So, you know, but, but we, we just shrug our shoulders and, and, and we go on our merry way, um, consuming stuff and releasing toxins. So that's the problem. Everyone has turned a blind eye to this, you know, not just governments, but you and me as well. So we've got to start thinking about these things because, as you point out, the earth is finite. There are limits to how much you can do this before it really starts to rebound on you. 
when you talk about the threats, I can hear how they might be interrelated. So population and technology increasing the rate at which we're consuming and polluting, while human denials preventing anything from being done about it. Does the literature, does the research, does your work hint at sort of a starting point? I know it's a lot to ask one person to find all the answers, but is there a thread, a loose thread somewhere that we can pull that might cause the whole thing to unravel into solutions? There are many starting points, um, and you can't just pick up one threat. You know, if you just try to fix the climate, you will fail. One of the other, one of the other mega threats will get you. You know, they will destroy civilization. Will still destroy civilization with nuclear war or, or with uh, chemicals or something like that. So we've got to address them all together. Um, the good news is that we have started with some of them. Certainly, we've started with climate progress is being made on renewable energy. Um, with resources, we're starting to recycle things. Talk about a circular economy is already widespread these days. So lots of the solutions are not hard to find. The, the solutions already exist. They require no new technologies. They can be implemented today, not even tomorrow. Today, we can start implementing them, provided we are aware of the threats, you know, the, the, the reasons to implement them. And, and the good news, again, is that if we start implementing them, they will create opportunities for us. They will create new industries, new jobs, uh, new ways of thinking about the world, new ways of caring for the world. So if we do these things, there are many rewards in it, and we will not suffer a catastrophic crash in our civilization and maybe our species, which is what we're heading for at the moment. You've touched on a topic I was going to ask about later, so I'll just jump to it now. We've all had a big few years. They've been massive. There's been the pandemic. Climate change has been a huge point of conversation for some time. And there's been a range of social movements and injustices reaching mainstream discourse. I'm getting the impression that people are tired. They're exhausted of bad news and new rules and having new large-scale amorphous problems presented to them. I'm just conscious that with the introduction of eight new and equally as complex threats, people will just switch off and disengage. How do we keep people hopeful about our future and motivated enough to engage on these topics? In my book, in every chapter dealing with a major threat, I talk about what the policy solutions are, i.e. what the world must do about this threat. And I also talk about what you can do in your own life, right? Now, the, the, the antidote to depression or despair is action. And I give you lots and lots and lots of actions that you can take in your own life, how you can change your shopping habits, how you can change the things that you buy and use about your house to make yours a more sustainable home, to make your footprint on the earth lighter, less damaging. Uh, so, you know, and these things are already widely published. I've just simply collected them together from, as I say, the wisest minds around the world. And so the opportunity is for everybody to take a little bit of action in their own lives. And to be absolutely frank with you, if we wait for government to solve these, these, these crises, it will never happen. Governments will not move because they've been paid by large industries to do nothing. So, so basically, we have to do it. We, the 8 billion citizens of planet Earth, have to do it together. And we have to force governments and large corporations to obey us. Through our demand uh, for consumer goods, we can direct whether there is the energy that we receive is renewable or fossil. 
Okay, we're already seeing this in motor cars. You're seeing you know, terrific transition from, from fossil fuel cars to electric cars. Why? Consumer demand. Simple as that. People have said, I don't want such a dirty vehicle any longer. I don't want to pollute the air of my city. I don't want to, don't want to release all that carbon. Um, basically, so I'll buy an electric car. Now, that can happen with food. You can have renewable food as well. You can have renewable clothing. Right? We can recycle all the metals and the minerals and the timber and the concrete and the bricks and things like that that we use in, in our daily lives. We don't have to dig up new ones. It's no longer necessary. So there's lots and lots and lots of things that can be done and, and which are heartening and cheering, and they will make you feel better about yourself. Okay, so it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. It's all inevitable. So what can little old me do while the gigantic corporations still run around and do whatever they want? The solutions already exist and are available to us. It's just a matter of us utilizing them, I suppose. I mean, like you mentioned, there are more people on the planet now than there has ever been before, which means if we all voted with our dollar and invested in the future we wanted to see based on how we spent our money, we'd see change and have a better chance of avoiding catastrophe. We've seen this with the increase in electric cars uh, and the rise of vegetarian options at some of the biggest fast food chains on the planet. Very much so, yeah. And, and you know, the opportunity is, is perhaps not to avoid a catastrophe, but, but to, to, to mitigate that catastrophe, to reduce the scale of that catastrophe. I mean, we're already experiencing climate damage, uh, global poisoning, things like that. These things are already killing us. But, you know, if you don't want doom and gloom, you don't have to have it. You can work to avoid it. You know, you can, in, in, in your daily habits and your daily purchasing activity, where you send a dollar signal to the whole world, what you want to, what you want to buy and what you don't want to buy, uh, you, can, you can change the world. So it's entirely possible for individuals to do this, especially as governments uh, are not interested in doing it. Mm. Well, talking about daily activities, there is a chapter called Thinking Like a Species in your book, which talks about how humans are experiencing a joint connectivity through the internet, which most of us would use daily. This grabbed me because I see the internet facilitate the rapid sharing of information and ideas and mobilize millions of people for a specific cause. But I also see it polarize people, dehumanize social groups and spread misinformation, which has led to tangible harm or damage in the world. You emphasise the need for us to become informed consumers of the internet. So I'm wondering, what is an informed consumer? How do we become one? And how will being an informed consumer help us overcome these threats? Well, have you ever bought an apple or a tomato in the, in the, uh, in the store? If you have, you probably picked one up from the bunch and you inspected it for damage or, or whether it was rotten or not. And if it was rotten, you put it back and you picked another one. Uh, I mean, look, people have got to... That's a survival skill. I mean, basic uh, human hunter-gatherers could tell a poison berry from a non-poison berry, mm. right? You had to have that, those skills or you died. So all, all people today need to be able to distinguish between truth and bullshit. They need to be a much better educated, really, in, 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 in why they are being deceived by people and how they're being deceived. They just need to be, you know, alert consumers. Now, to help them do that, I have two proposals in the book. First of all, I want a World Truth Commission. Uh, and a World Truth Commission is there to publicly shame and expose anyone who is prominent in the world, so a politician, a film star, or whatever, anyone who's spreading lies, you know, a, a fossil fuel company or something like that, anyone or, or even a, a newspaper publisher. 
you know, if they're spreading lies, then they should be exposed as spreading lies. We, we, will, we run a fact finder over them, check the veracity of what they're claiming, and if they are not telling the truth, then we tell the public, do not trust this person because they don't tell the truth. And, you know, I, public shaming is, has been around, you know, since people got put in the stocks in medieval times. It's a very effective way of controlling uh, people who do bad things by society. Now, telling lies, whether you're a, an oil company or a politician or, or whoever it is, telling lies is a very dangerous thing. I mean, telling people telling lies about masks and vaccines have actually killed an awful lot of people during the COVID pandemic. So we know that telling lies about certain things is actually deadly. It's an act of homicide. So we need to prevent it. Uh, so a World Truth Commission, it, 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 it has no punitive powers. It can't punish anyone for telling lies. It can simply expose them and, and make the public aware that they ought not to be trusted. So if your prime minister is fibbing, you know, uh, then then you will be told that. And, you know, you may revise your what you do when you vote at the next election. Uh, the second thing is a World Integrity Service. Uh, at the moment, you go on the Internet or you, you go into Twitter or something like that. You don't know whether you can trust this particular website or this particular tweeter or not. Right. They, they don't have a, a, a seal saying that this person is an honest person. Uh, that they that who, who's not spreading lies or something like that, a world a world integrity service will actually provide a seal of approval for people who do tell the truth, and they will be tested on it. So, if say a university wanted such a seal of approval that it was telling the truth, it would apply for it, and it would get it would be granted the seal provisionally, and the seal of approval would be reviewed periodically. And if that university was found to have told lies, then, then the seal of approval would either be downgraded or it would be confiscated. So, in other words, it, it, it's, a, it's like the Australian maid symbol. It's a way of, of uh, giving value to the statements and the utterances of important organisations. So that, you know, people who are wandering in this, in this great jungle called the internet um, have, a better, have a better chance of knowing who's telling the truth and who's bullshitting. That sounds effective at sorting out the people who are intentionally misleading or spreading false information and holding them accountable. I'm just wondering, as a mental health professional, I work a lot with subjective realities, so different experiences and beliefs of the same phenomena. Both perspectives are true for that person, but they are different without anyone trying to deceive the other or myself, ideally. Similarly, I think people can see the same statistic or academic finding and draw different conclusions. How do we decide as a species whose idea of truth is the one we follow and who should be making that decision? Well, I, I, I would probably put together a, um, a highly ethical panel of scientists, philosophers, etc., to actually scrutinise these various things, to, to be on the Truth Commission, for example, and, and I would give them, equip them with a, a staff. So, in other words, we're doing very much the same as the International Court of Justice. They provide international legal oversight for for international crimes uh, you know and if somebody commits a crime that person gets sentenced to jail uh, you know in this case there would be no jail or no punishment but if somebody committed a crime against the truth uh, the public would be informed of it and you know I, I think that that is a pretty powerful because th this is going to damage people's reputation if they lie 
I think it is a pretty powerful way of doing it. Now, I would use the same uh, structure as, as we have in science, where a fact is established by continual testing of that fact. That fact must be able to survive continual testing and retesting by different people who are not connected with one another. It must be independently verified. And, you know, our courts obviously don't always make the right decisions, but in most cases they do. They, they adopt the evidence that is presented. Um, you know, the jury tends to adopt the evidence that is presented to it by the, the, the laws, the lawyers. Uh, and, and that's how they make their minds up. Now, I'm suggesting exactly the same thing uh, in respect of claims regarding the megathreats, because the megathreats are a life and death issue for the whole of humanity. And if we are deceived about them, then the risk of a catastrophe is very much higher. Democracy does not work if the information that people are being given is false, right? Democracy is irrelevant. If, if, if people are being lied to left, right and centre, how can they possibly vote sensibly? So we need someone to tell them who the liars are and who aren't. And, and that basically is, you know, it, it, it's a tool that we need. And we've only been driven into this by the fact that so many people are lying and for such selfish reasons that they have distorted the human discourse. It sounds like that could be an effective way to introduce consequences for being untruthful and at least encourage greater consideration of what people are producing in terms of content, especially if that accountability is determined by an interdisciplinary and well-rounded body that can damage a reputation or have just an honest impact on their reputation. Yeah, I mean, this is not going to solve all of the problems. People are still going to tell lies. I mean, human beings are addicted to lies. Um, and, and I should point out that um, in spite of the fact that the New York Times uh, caught Trump out 20,000 lies, 20,000 different lies, he still had 70 or 80 million Americans who voted for him. So 70 or 80 million Americans are addicted to lies. Um, you know, they don't care whether the truth is being told or not, obviously. They, they don't vote on, the, on whether it's the truth or not, but purely on what they believe. So this is not going to completely solve the problem, but it does put the truth back in the court of the majority of human opinion. Okay, so it, it resurrects the truth. In the way that we try to seek the truth in a court of law, this creates the court of law in which the truth can be brought forth. Uh, as a, as, a, to, as a guide for human beings to decide what is the right thing to do. Yeah, well, research suggests that we're emotional beings that think, not thinking beings that have emotions. And this is supported by work showing that emotions are much better at motivating behaviour than purely providing information to someone. I mean, we know that knowing is not enough to change behaviour. So we're motivated by feelings and emotions. We love a gripping story. If we just start focusing on the truth, then we can have science communicators like yourself break through the noise of misinformation and make the truth more compelling, which means we'd be heading in the direction of compelling stories guided by reality rather than compelling story, stories guided by self-interest. Yes. Uh, I mean, basically, I mean, a lot of wars start with, with a barrage of lies. You know, the, the uh, truth is the first casualty of, of war, isn't it? So, um you know, basically people start lying about one another like bilio when, when, when they get into a conflict situation. Uh, if you can reduce the volume of lies, you can actually reduce the capacity for conflict. So this is going to increase the chances of world peace dramatically. It's not just a case of giving people a good basis for decision making. It's also actually going to, you know, lower the temperature of human disputes if we, if we cut out a lot of the lies. 
Now, as I say, we, 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 won't, we won't get rid of all of them, but we will rely on people to use their common sense and say, look, a serial liar is probably doing it for a reason and, and the reason may not be good for me. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I won't vote for that person or I won't buy their products uh, any longer because they're lying to me. I don't trust them, in other words. They're, they're, they're bad for my children's future or something like that. So, so it, you know, we're helping to inform the debate. And let me refer back to what you were saying earlier. We are on the brink of the most important evolution in the entirety of human history. And that is this capacity of the entire human race to start to think together as one. Okay, this is the internet reaching every single individual, enabling a conversation to take place that is worldwide, across geography, across cultures, across national boundaries, linguistic boundaries, gender barriers, ethnic barriers, cultural barriers, you name it. For the first time since we left Africa, we can sit around the same campfire and have the same conversation. We can share ideas about how to tackle these threats, about how bad the threats are, how urgent they need to be addressed, what we should do. We can have that conversation. It's exciting to think of all of the potential of those different conversations, all those different world perspectives and views coming together to create a joint solution for the species. I am wondering, though, I think that sort of thinking can lead people into believing that we can innovate our way out of these problems. We don't need to actually change our behaviour. We can just keep changing our environment to match our behaviour so that we don't have any more problems rather than look inwards and say, well, we need to actually change what we're doing. What do you say to that? Uh, I, I agree with that, uh, and I agree it's not easy to do that, that people always look for the quick fix. And in technology, there are no quick fixes. Just as coal went from being a benign technology to a planet-smashing technology, and agriculture went from being a benign technology to a planet-destroying technology, uh, you know any of the the new technologies, AI, global surveillance, you know nano um, nanochemicals, nanotechnology, all those things are equally capable of being abused by people with bad motives, by people who want to get rich quick. Uh, and sell us a whole lot of stuff that is dangerous or bad for us, or people who want to enslave us. I mean, universal surveillance and AI will be used to spy on every single person on Earth and, and, and bend them to the will of whoever wields it. So, you know, that's not in the, in the interests of humanity. We have to get control of these super powerful technologies before they get control of us. And the answer to, to that, I'm proposing a World Te Technology Commission which assesses not just the benefits, because you know, when scientists talk about a new technology, you only hear about the benefits. You never hear about the downsides. Mm. You know, they're, they're salesmen flogging uh, a beautiful, shiny new product, and, and they are not interested in telling you what it might do to you, how it might poison you, how it might corrupt you, you know, how it might damage you in some way. Mm -hmm. So I believe we need a World Technology Commission that evaluates every new technology, and it looks at the pluses and it looks at the minuses and it provides a fair, objective report to the people of the planet so they can decide whether they want to buy into this technology or not. So I think that that's, again, we need to inform the public debate, inform that 8 billion people who are online, 9 billion people by then, 9 billion people who are online, you know, whether this thing is, is good for their own future or bad for their own future. 
again, it's about that informed and engaged public that can make decisions for themselves based on the information available, opposed to selectively releasing information and, say, withholding the military applications of the technology that they've been put out and disguising it as a sort of home device that's fun and quirky. People will have a bigger, more honest view of where this technology is coming from and where they're putting their money. Yeah, well, let me give you an example of that. I mean, 66% of the wars that have been fought in the last 100 years have been fought over food, land and water, okay? Uh, And those have been the the precipitating causes and drivers of those wars, okay? There may have been religion and politics and nationality and ethnicity on top of it, but deep down people were frightened about their ability to survive and their ability to produce food. I mean, after all, a nation is nothing more than a line on a map enclosing a whole lot of food-producing resources. You know, that's, what a, that's what national boundaries are. Mm. Um, so, so basically, if you are able to, to feed the world, and, and I explain how this can be done, we can feed the world on renewable, climate-proof food. If we can do that, we will actually remove the cause of two-thirds of the wars. If you do that, you just don't need a $1.8 trillion weapons budget anymore. You can spend that weapons budget, or part of it, spend 20% of it, on sustainable, renewable food. You can spend $300 billion of it on getting contraception to every woman on earth who wants it. Uh, You can spend it on putting the trees back where we've we've torn them up. Uh, You can spend it on rewilding the world and pulling the carbon down again and things like that. So a lot of that weapons money, which we're currently, you know, in, in fear that we might have wars and things like that, it's it's totally wasted. If we put that into peaceful pursuits like sustainable food, rewilding, um, uh, family planning and so on, we will have a peaceful world. You know, it's, it's not hard to do. So the resources to do it already exist. The technology already exists. We The know-how already exists. It just wants for people to make a decision. Yeah, I mean, it isn't a lack of resources. It's a resource management issue. We have one side of the world overeating and overconsuming to the point where they're making themselves unhealthy. Meanwhile, on the other side, people don't have enough to get and stay healthy. I mean, there was a stat going around saying that we could end world hunger with the food waste created by the Western world. Let me give you a simple example of that. Uh, There's no city on earth that can feed itself, right? Not one of them, okay? They all get their nutrients from all over the world, um, you know, very often thousands of miles away, and, and they put them down the sewer pipe or they throw them in the, in, the, in, the, in the tip, okay? And those nutrients are then lost to humanity forever because they end up going down the sewer, they go out to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Now, if you recycle the nutrients, so you catch them, either at the tip or at the, uh, at the sewage farm, and you recycle them, so you use them to grow new food in the city using one of many new um, food-producing technologies that are now available to us, that city can feed itself. It, it doesn't have to import any more food. It'll create a host of new industries. Restaurants will grow their own food on the roof of the restaurant. You know, you'll have a salad that was harvested 15 minutes ago, you know, not three weeks ago. So basically, you know, it's it's a wonderful, you know, way. So this is so sustainable food 
you know, with cities growing their own, with food being produced in the deep oceans, with regenerative agriculture by caring farmers, you can feed the world that way and have a much more peaceful planet. Because, you know, even in the, in the developing world and in places that are uh, at risk at the moment of, of collapse and war and civil war, you can put the new food technologies in there and you will just completely calm the place down. You will remove the threat of war. So I'm thinking particularly Africa, the Middle East, you know, Central America, all of these places where the food supply is a bit dicey. If you reassure people by having a sustainable, renewable food supply, then, you know, a lot of the tension goes out of it. And, and, and therefore, there is no, no longer any need for such big armies with so many weapons and things like that. And I think it would be interesting to see what a world would look like where our priorities would shift and what we would be doing if we had everyone on the planet's basic needs met. Absolutely. And, and what happens then is that you move not just to a circular economy where we recycle everything, you move to a creative economy. And a creative economy runs on ideas, not on materials. So instead of concrete and steel and, and physical things, you know, bricks and mortar and so forth, making up that economy, the, co the economy consists of ideas. It consists of the arts. It consists of the sciences. It consists of entertainment. It consists of sport. So it's all the things that take place in your head and in your emotions, uh, wonderful creative things. I mean, there is no end to the inventiveness and the creativity of the human mind. So this is an inexhaustible resource, as opposed to iron ore or coal or anything else like that. They run out sooner or later. Basically, human ideas never run out. So if we have an economy that is founded on them, and, and if people have jobs in that economy, not in the dig it up and dump it economy, uh, then, then basically, you know, you will move humanities to sustainability far more quickly. And look, we're already starting to see that happening. Um, you know, it is a trend. But this idea that you've, you've got to employ people so they can knock down a forest is, is you know, th that is a 200 years out of date. And we've mm -hmm. just got to go into the world of the creative uh, ideas economy. Oh, the ideas economy sounds interesting. I'll have to read up. Julian, this will be my last question. Uh, each episode I ask for specific ways in which the audience can contribute to the cause that we talk about. This book is packed with them and we've discussed some in our conversation. But how can listeners help to address the challenges of one of these risks? Let's use food security as an example. Yeah, look, there's a heap of information available on the internet, trustworthy information from farmers and, and uh, food producers about what is, what is green and sustainable to, to grow and what is toxic. I mean, you don't want to be eating things and feeding them to your kids if they're poisonous, do you? you know, so, so a very little research can quickly get you a lot of advice on how to shop sustainably. Um, and, and by shopping sustainably, you'll be sending your dollar signals to the market. You and a billion other people will be sending the dollar signals to the companies that control the food supply. And they will say to themselves, oh, there's no profit in these, these dirty, polluting foods. We will go over to the sustainable ones. So they will make the swap the same way renewable energy came about. Uh, so, and then that swap is still going on. But the renewable food swap is going to be even bigger. But it's something that every single one of us can do because we eat three times a day. And it's a decision we make three times a day. So three times a day, you need to ask yourself, am I going to destroy the world with what I'm eating? Or am I going to regreen the world with what I'm eating? 
So just have a look at your food, think about it, and eat sensibly. That's that. That would be the easiest thing that I could say. But other than that, the book contains two hundred things that you can do in your own life. Uh, I don't give any priority to them. Pick the ones that suit you. Pick the ones that suit your interests. Well, Julian, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate not only your insights in this episode, but also the body of work that you're championing and have been championing for years. Um, if people want to hear more about your work, um, especially the book, where can they find you and it? Uh, the book is published by Cambridge University Press. It's on their website. It's on Amazon.com. It's called How to Fix a Broken Planet, Advice for Surviving in the 21st Century. Uh, and it's uh, it's quite cheap and it's easy to read. It's it's short. It's only 150 word pages long. Um, so it's 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 designed for the young person who is concerned about their future, and wants a whole lot of good advice on on how to fix the planet that their parents have made a mess of. So you know it's it's pitched at that audience more than anybody else because they are they hold the key to the future. And and finally, let me say this: the Earth is a lifeboat sinking under the pressures of overcrowding and over-demand. We either row it together to safety or we go down together. The choice is before us now. What are we going to choose? Julian Cribb, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to Making Waves. I'm Mark, and remember, an antidote to despair is action.